You're listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church of Van Walsteen. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. If you have your Bibles this morning, I would like for you to join me at Micah chapter 3 this morning. Micah chapter 3. While you're finding your place there, and again, if you need to use the table of contents, that's quite all right. Um, It's page 1280 in my Bible, if uh, that means anything to you, but uh, Micah chapter 3. While you're turning there, I want to give you just a little heads up as to the direction we're going um, in terms of our our preaching schedule, you might say. Uh, I typically do a preaching calendar uh, earlier in the year and kind of lay it out. It is always subject to change naturally, Uh, but uh, when we wrap up. Uh, the book of Micah here in just a few weeks. Uh, next week, Jace will be preaching uh, from Micah chapter 4. Uh, Griff will preach the next week from Micah 5. I'll come back and wrap it up with 6 and 7. We're going to try to get a little bit of time away at the end of this month. And so I uh, look forward to uh, hearing from those guys. And uh, then we're going to do a summer series called A Word to the Wise. We're going to look at uh, the Proverbs. Uh, it will not be a verse by verse or even chapter by chapter. It's kind of difficult to do that with uh, the book of Proverbs and the way that it's written, uh, but we will be looking at some, uh, some key selected Proverbs. Um, we're living in a day when it seems that uh, wisdom is in short supply. Um, and so one of the Proverbs that we'll look at, for example, uh, is found in Proverbs uh, eighteen thirteen, uh, that says, uh, he who answers a matter before he hears it, it is a shame and a folly to him. Um, And one of the things that uh, we see pretty regularly, especially on social media, it seems, uh, people uh, pontificating, uh, people uh, expressing uh, their firmly held opinions um, in a way that makes you think, I'm not sure they've really thought that through, uh, or I'm not sure they've really uh, given careful consideration to to what uh, they're weighing in on. And it's especially true many times when uh, they give an opinion on an article, for example, and then you're left to go, I don't think you even read the article. I I think you just saw a headline uh, that triggered you somehow. (laughs) And so you, uh, and scripture speaks to things like that. It says it's it's shameful. It's folly. It's foolishness uh, for us to weigh in on something before we've heard the whole matter. It seems in our day and time, we've lost this this idea of nuance. Jason, I talk about this quite often. Um, And so, uh, in that series, we're going to be looking at some key proverbs. You can look forward to that through uh, really the remainder of the summer. But we're in week three now of a sermon series uh, looking at the Old Testament book of Micah. It is unlikely that you have spent a lot of your devotional time uh, looking at uh, Micah. In fact, you probably not spent a lot of devotional time looking at any of the minor prophets for that matter. I'm in that section of scripture right now, my personal Bible reading, and I I'm just struck by the fact that uh, God's covenant people are often foolish and forgetful and rebellious and stiff-necked and all those things. And about the time I start uh, shaking my head in disgust, I go, that's me. (laughs) That's that's me many times. Uh, I do the same things. And so Micah is one of the minor prophets, not because his message is unimportant. Uh, They're called the minor prophets because their message is typically shorter in comparison to the major prophets. Um, 
And so he prophesied in a day when the nation of Israel was in a state of moral decay. It was characterized by corruption and by greed. It was a time when grave injustices were being committed. The family unit was disintegrating, all this much like the day in which we live. So this is very applicable for us today. Now remember, Micah was from the small town of Moresheth, which is in the southern part of Judah. He was not raised among the uh, elites uh, in the city of Jerusalem, which is why a great deal of his passion, his preaching here, uh, reflects a special sensitivity to the abuse uh, of power at the expense of the little guy, we might say, of the vulnerable, of the marginalized, and the poor. I also want to remind us, this has kind of been a a kind of a foundational uh, concept for us as we look at the book of Micah. Mark Dever points out in his uh, work on the message of the Old Testament these three major themes that we want to bear in mind as we make our way through these seven chapters of Micah uh, that help us understand the character and the nature of God. Uh, This isn't just a historical lesson. Okay, we want to learn more about uh, our God and his character and nature. So in this, we see that God wants wrongs to be rebuked. Uh, God doesn't uh, turn a blind eye and a deaf ear uh, to sin, uh, to, to injustice. Uh, God also wants his people to be restored. Uh, and then we see that God wants his character to be known. God has revealed himself to us in a number of different ways, primarily through his word. And we see that uh, even here in the book of Micah. He wants us to know his character through the acknowledgement of his supremacy, through the remembrance of his righteousness, and through the demonstration of his mercy. So Micah's concern, as we've already discovered here in the first three chapters of the book, is that the spiritual and the moral decay of God's people will bring them under God's judgment. This is a, uh, this is, he's sounding the alarm, warning Uh, Remember how severe this judgment would be. We learned in chapter 1, verse number 3. It says, the Lord is coming from his dwelling place. He comes uh, down and treads the high places of the earth. So when you see that God treads, you can pretty much know that does not mean that he's skipping through the tulips, okay? Uh, God comes and crushes. All the weight of his divine holiness and righteousness bears down on the sin of those who are committed to their rebellion. The picture of judgment in Micah is much more personal than that. God wanted wrong rebuked, and he would ensure that judgment came. He would use foreign military powers. He would use the decay in the culture. Uh, He would do it in a direct way himself, and so God can use any number of means. He is sovereign. God is not in any way limited uh, or has limited resources when it comes to to his judgment. And so we know from history then that the Assyrians did in fact destroy Samaria, another name for the northern kingdom of Israel, several years after Micah's prophecy here. The northern ten tribes of Israel disappeared quite literally from the pages of history forever. Uh, And 150 years later, Jerusalem and the southern kingdom of Judah were defeated and carried off into exile. So the graphic language, if you've already started reading here in this third chapter, uh, you'll find uh, that there's some pretty graphic language in the opening verses here of the third chapter. And it reflects the horror of the nation's life under abusive leaders as well as the terrible perversion that the abuse of authority is. 
Now, the leaders are, are, are guilty of not respecting the sanctity of human life. Now, this is not a new thing in our culture. Okay, this is not something that's just been fought since, since Roe v. Wade. Okay, I know that's a, a big topic right now, and I would, I, I would just caution you, uh, as you as you look at the different approaches to abortion being defeated and all those things, and certainly we pray for that. We want it to be unthinkable uh, in our world. We are unashamedly pro-life, but that doesn't mean that we're just anti-abortion. And so uh, there, there are some things that, that you have to stop and consider when it comes to the best approach to this. And so right now, I'll just tell you, within our own um, cooperation of churches, it's becoming a very polarizing issue. You have those who stand on what they would call the abolitionist side of this, and they would say anything that stops short of making it completely illegal uh, is not acceptable. And there are others who would say, well, there's a more incremental approach. And as we take some of these incremental approaches to this thing, then we can, we can save the lives of, of innocent babies. And so uh, just know that there are, are people on both sides of that issue right now. And uh, unfortunately, we still live in a very broken, sinful world. And uh, we, as followers of Jesus Christ, are not exempt from that. Uh, and so many times we take the wrong approach. We take the wrong attitude. We uh, try to just win arguments instead of, uh, it just becomes very convoluted. And so I want you to be aware of that. But in this particular case, we see that there's this grave injustice. It says here, even that uh, th they despise justice, they're distorting rights, even bribing judges. And we see here in verse number 11, her leaders judge for a price. Um, so we know that sin, at its root, fundamentally is a matter of the heart. We know that. You, you, he says here in verse 2, we'll see it in a moment, you hate good and love evil. Now the antithesis of that is found in Romans chapter 12, where it says we're, we're to abhor what is evil while we cling to what is good. And so that seems to get twisted all the time, right? And we see that every day in our own culture, people calling evil good and good evil and doing what is right in their own eyes. And it's a, it, this is not a new thing. And I remind you that Matthew, in, in, in Matthew chapter 15, verse 19, says, For out of the heart come evil thoughts and murder and adultery and sexual immorality and theft and false testimony and slander. So when a heart is twisted, we shouldn't be surprised when it does evil. It's a heart matter. In spite of all of this, in spite of this bleak forecast, and in spite of all that was going on around him, Micah was not hopeless. He was not hopeless. He writes in chapter 7, verse 7, But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. So his hope was based upon God's faithfulness. So with that in mind, let's give our attention now to this third chapter of Micah's prophecy. We'll look together at all 12 verses, and I hope that you will follow along as I read. And I said, hear. That's an important word in Scripture. It's a word that we see in what we know as the Shema of Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Hear. It's not just to, 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 to hear something in an auditory sort of way, it is to hear and to heed, to do something with that. It's not the selective hearing that many times we guys are accused of by our wives, right? You have selective hearing. They're saying, hear this, don't just hear it, but give attention to it. Do something with this. And so we see that same language here. Hear, you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice? 
You who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. That's a pleasant thought, right? This is graphic language, all for a very important reason. We're going to see that in just a moment. Then they will cry to the Lord. What, 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 a, what a strange juxtaposition here. You're doing these atrocities, but then you're, you're going to turn around and call on the Lord. But he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. Therefore it shall be night to you without vision and darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets and the day shall be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced and the diviners put to shame. They shall all cover their lips for there is no answer from God. But as for me, I am filled with power. The spirit of the Lord and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins. And the mountain of the house, a wooded height. Last week, we saw that the oppression of Micah's day was described as willful and imaginative. People literally devising evil coming up with, with, with uh, schemes, bad business dealings, and so forth. And so uh, it was, we saw it was willful, it was imaginative, it was primarily economic in nature is what we saw there. Here in chapter 3, he goes a little further. He digs a little deeper, you might say, and he identifies the oppressors. And the first thing I want us to see is these oppressive rulers. In verses 1 through 4, the rulers are mentioned. They prey on the people with such abandon that Micah compares them to cannibals, stripping the flesh from his people's bones. This passage is the beginning of what's called a triad of judgment oracles, focusing on the corruption primarily of the judicial system in Judah. And Micah uses this incredibly graphic imagery in this indictment to indicate the horrific nature of injustice. This is gross. Victims crying out for justice should receive help from the courts, but instead they are cannibalized, is what Micah is saying here. The leaders attempting to strip away everything of value from their victims, the very people they were supposed to love as neighbors. And so passages like this give us preachers some interpretive challenges. We're left asking ourselves, is this to be interpreted literally or is it to be interpreted figuratively? And I mean, it's just, it's awful. 
And as I wrestled with this text this last week, I did some historical study and discovered that uh, there's not much historical evidence that would indicate that there was, in fact, cannibalism practiced at that particular time. Okay, and with some of those things in mind, we look and say, well, well, someone was doing this kind of thing. Why would he choose to use this kind of language? Certainly the Assyrians would have been known for their gross brutality and other pagan nations, uh, these kinds of things. No regard whatsoever for the sanctity of human life. So I think I, I would myself take kind of a hybrid approach to that. I would say that these kind of things were literally happening Though I think he's choosing this language in a, in a powerful way to help them understand the gravity and the seriousness of the injustice that's being committed here. I mean, this is strong language. This isn't easy to read. This isn't, this isn't, <laughs> this isn't nice and tidy, right? I mean, this is incredible. A number of years ago, the mid-90s, I had an opportunity. I was invited to come over to England to preach at a, at a big national student convention there outside of London. And we were a meeting at this polo grounds, and they had these huge tents set up, and that's where they would feed us, and we would kind of go through buffet style, and we would prepare our meals, and one meal was a, a particularly special meal. Uh, they had roasted uh, some pigs, and they had them laid out there, literally on the table, apple in the mouth and everything. I mean, and so we did what they referred to as pig picking, okay? We call it pulled pork, right? But we were quite literally pulling meat off of the, the carcass. I mean, we were pig picking. That, that's, in some ways, that's kind of a sanitized version of, of the language that Micah is using here. You, you, you're killing these people is what he's saying. You're cannibalizing them. You're stripping away everything that is of value to them. And get this, in a, in a punishment fit for the crime, sentence is passed on the unjust in verse number four. When judgment comes, these people will cry to the Lord. They'll presume. But he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. Mark this down. Here's an eternal truth. And this is as it relates to the nature of God. Sin separates us from God. That's why we said last week, when we choose to sin, we choose to suffer. And one of the things that we suffer is, is broken fellowship with God. It's amazing to me how many times I have conversation with people and like, man, things just aren't right with me and God. I feel like God's mad at me. I feel like, you know, all these different things. And you can be struggling with some of these things. And when you immediately take a look in the mirror, like maybe there's a reason for that. And perhaps that reason is that you're choosing to walk in rebellion against God. All the while expecting God to somehow bless you and bless your foolishness. There are consequences for sin. We unpacked that a little bit last week. Now, what, what was God's counsel to the leaders of Israel? I mean, you look at this and go, well, did they really even know any better? Or, well, sure they did. In Exodus chapter 23, verses 6 through 8, it says, You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge, and do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked, and you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. This was, this was gross corruption and injustice. And they think that they can somehow like use God as some sort of an insurance policy. You ever come across that phenomenon? Maybe, maybe you've tried it yourself. 
to use religion somehow as some sort of a, a life insurance policy while you live life on your own terms. It simply doesn't work. Because if you will have Christ on, on, on your own terms, that, that's, that's not how he relates to us. If you will not have him on his terms, you cannot have him at all. And so Micah calls out the rulers. And this is a chilling word for us. It's a, it's a warning. It tells us that these folks could kind of turn on religion when they needed to. They would run to God when the going got tough. But God is not impressed with, with, with sudden uncharacteristic uh, penitence in the middle of catastrophe or, or gross negligence and sin. You see, God doesn't look at things the way we do. We see that clearly in Scripture. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. And we see that all the time. We can quickly judge someone by how they look on the outside. Or we think, man, this person's got to get their life cleaned up so that they can come to Jesus. And God is in the business of inside-out transformation. Inside-out transformation. Anything else leads to a form of Phariseeism. Where you feel like you've, you've got all these things in order, all these external things. I'm do, I do this just right. I show up so many times. I do this. I do that. I, well, I'm checking all the boxes. When, when still at the very heart, there's rebellion and sin. And so I want you to notice the three things fundamentally that we see of these abusive rulers, these oppressive rulers. They abused justice rather than embracing it. They abandoned mercy rather than embodying it, and they embraced pride rather than rejecting it. These, these things all characterize the oppressive rulers of Micah's day. And that's what he's speaking against. Because, we're learning through the book of Micah, God wants wrongs rebuked. God wants wrongs rebuked. Well, number two today, I want us to see profiteering preachers. Unless you think us preachers get off scot-free, we get smacked upside the head because he calls out these false prophets next. They're also part of the oppressors that Micah goes after in this part of the chapter. He gives a word of personal testimony in verse number 8. As a faithful prophet, he says that he, uh, as his, it's an admittedly punchy expose of, of the sin of the people, but it is empowered by the Spirit of God. We said early on that Micah doesn't appear to take any delight in delivering this message. And in the same way, I take no delight in preaching the book of Micah. Okay, and sitting in the study and preparing the preaching calendar for the year, I'm thinking, I'm not sitting here going, man, I'm just going to waylay some people with the book of Micah this, this, fall, this spring. This is hard stuff. This is hard stuff. I can think of a lot of other more pleasant subjects that we could come together and discuss on a Sunday morning. But I don't think we would have a clear understanding of the, of the nature of God. We'd have a clear appreciation of the holiness of God. And so it was no different in Micah's day. There were these prophets who were, uh, were, were, were more committed to uh, popularity than they were to the principles of God's truth. So he says, this is where I get my boldness in preaching from. The courage to say hard things is from the Spirit of, of the Lord. But what a contrast Micah provides to these false prophets who were preaching to his generation. If you look back at verse number 5, for example, you'll see something of the way that they went about their so-called ministries. They cry peace 
for those who feed them and war on those who put nothing in their mouths. This is typical of those who use people. If you can do something for me, then I value you. If you can't, then you're of little regard. That's kind of the approach they took. And you look at the summary statement of this whole business down in verse number 11. The community's heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord in the midst of us? We're religious. Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. You see what's happening? The, the religious leaders even of Micah's day, the elites in Micah's community have the prophets and the priests in their pockets, bought and paid for. And so it's no surprise that their message was always easy on the ear, full of comforts. It'd be like any one of you coming up to me after the service today and saying, Pastor, if I slipped you a couple hundred bucks, could you quit preaching on Micah? Because it's making me feel a little uncomfortable. And I don't like that. Well, trust me, I, I, I don't like it any more than you do because the Lord uses this on, on me as much as he uses it on you. So the, the sting of biblical conviction or, or the, the warning alarm of divine rebuke was was never to be heard among them. They were bought and paid for, essentially. Understand this. The ministry of the Word of God sets the tone and the temperature for the life of the people of God. In our day, as in every other day, Micah's day included, there were all kinds of pressures to recast the message in therapeutic terms, to push preaching to the margin, to replace it with something easier, something more attractive, to reinvent the purpose of the preaching ministry so that it's always filled only with pleasant encouragements. We want a pep talk, you know. Send us from the church on the Lord's day with a spring in our step and a song in our hearts knowing that all is right with the world. Certainly we see a, a great deal of hope here and it will become more obvious uh, the more we move through the book of Micah. But the truth is we can't fully appreciate the grace of God until we see it up against the holiness of God and understand his hatred for sin. It's like if you go to a jewelry store and you want to look at a piece of jewelry, what do they do many times to help you appreciate the brilliance of the, of the diamonds? They will put it up with a, on a backdrop of like black velvet, right? Yeah, because it just brings out the brilliance of it. And so when we consider the grace of God up against the, the dark sinfulness of our world and we see God's, God's mercy and God's great love for it, it be, I mean, it shines so brightly, does the gospel. So in Micah's day, at least, the danger was that people only ever heard what they wanted to hear. And the alarm ought to have been sounding because of their danger, the precarious position in which they stood before the holiness of God. It's a real danger. It's a danger for us, too. It's a danger that we have to resist at all costs. So we see these false prophets Motivated by popularity rather than by principle. Motivated by greed rather than grace. We have the same kind of, uh, of charlatans today. The prosperity gospel is filled with those who would, would give you these pleasant platitudes. Would try to convince you that God is consumed with your health and your wealth and all of these things. 
That's not a biblical message. That's not the biblical gospel. So I want you to see thirdly, as we wrap this up today, a spirit-empowered prophet. So we get a glimpse here into Micah's heart. He stands as a man of truth in a land of falsehood and sin. In the face of opposition and danger, he held firmly to God's truth. And in a culture that had abandoned covenant faithfulness and obedience, Micah lived as a man of God. But how? How did he do that? He answers that in verse number 8 again by, by way of testimony. He says, as for me, I am filled with power. It's not my own power. With the Spirit of the Lord. And with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Those are references to the divided kingdom of the nation of Israel. Micah was filled with God's power. Again, this is not just any power. It is the spirit of Yahweh. This power and strength, you'll notice, are tied to justice. Power and justice, both necessary because power without justice is tyrannical. While justice without power has no effect. And so Micah is saying he is able to boldly proclaim and declare a message of justice because he is powerfully filled with the Spirit. And as I was making my way through the text here this past week, I couldn't help but read those words. And I was reminded of one of Micah's contemporaries, one of the major prophets, a prophet named Isaiah. And in Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 through 3, we find these words. The year of the Lord's favor, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. To grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. What's most interesting about Isaiah's text is that Jesus himself quoted those words some 700 years later to describe his own prophetic ministry. In Luke chapter 4, we find record of this. The people who heard Jesus speak those words in the synagogue, imagine yourself being there, they were amazed at his gracious speech. I mean, what those three verses, absolutely beautiful, right? But then Jesus looked at them in the spirit of prophets like Micah and Isaiah and told them that their hearts were so hard that people went from being amazed to being enraged. And they dragged him out of the city to throw him off of a cliff. This is not a popular message. It's a lot easier when you think that the preacher is only talking about someone else. Oh, surely he's just talking about out there. Outside of the church. Now remember, Micah's prophecy is not delivered here to the evil Assyrians. This is a message to God's covenant people. So the people in the synagogue were trying to do what Israel and Judah had done for centuries. 
the very thing that the political and the religious leaders in Israel did several years later when they collaborated to have Jesus sentenced to death. The motive was kill the messenger. Kill the messenger. Only this time. And here's the gospel hope. Only this time the messenger had come to die. The messenger had come to die. And through his death and resurrection, Jesus would provide a once-for-all sacrifice for the sins of the world. The people of Micah's day had lost sight of the promise of Messiah. Instead, they were placing their hope in other things. And we've already learned in chapter 1, Micah said they were placing their hope in their government rather than in God to protect them. That sound familiar at all to anybody here in the room? Woe is me. In chapter 2, Micah said that they were hoping in culture, believing that cultural norms define their ethics, even if those norms violated God's truth. And here in chapter 3, Micah said they were rejecting God's counsel in favor of their own arrogant wisdom. Sounds strangely similar to our own culture, doesn't it? Not a whole lot has changed about the sinful human heart. And those who have trusted Jesus Christ as Savior face a common danger. If we're not careful, we can substitute religious activity for a growing relationship with God. And Micah is warning us, I believe, by application, that we can easily become like the political and the religious leaders of his day. And yet God continues to challenge us to pursue truth, and to live truth for his glory. That is his ultimate purpose for our lives. And so while this is tough plowing, it's not a pleasant message, know that there's great hope in the gospel. So with our heads bowed and our eyes closed for just a moment this morning, hope and pray as we've made our way through these first three chapters of Micah's prophecy that you are grieved as I am by the sinfulness of the human heart. It's my prayer that at the same time you are struck by the holiness of God. If you're here today and you've never turned from your sin to faith in Jesus Christ, I would invite you to take that step of faith today. While the Bible is fundamentally a book about people who have a problem with God, that problem we know is sin. It is a book about the hope of the gospel. It comes in the person perfect sinless life the sacrificial death the resurrection of Jesus Christ so if you're watching online today you're here in the room and you've never committed your life to Jesus Christ never placed your faith and trust in him I invite you to take that step of faith today
Lord God, as we continue to marinate in what you've said to us today by your Holy Spirit and through your word, Lord, we acknowledge that this is not pleasant in so many ways. In much the same way that we know that much of what is going on in our world today and even within the hearts of people who profess to be faithful Christians is not pleasant. It's an offense to a holy God. So Lord, I pray that you would help us today to be struck by that. To truly come before you as holy, sovereign God. And Lord, forgive us when we become presumptuous, much like the leaders of Micah's day. Isn't the Lord in our midst? How could these things befall us? So Lord, we come before you now in humility, desperately needing each and every day to proclaim the gospel to ourselves. Lord, I thank you that you have made it possible for us to be transformed from the inside out. We give you all praise and honor and glory now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine. For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com.